And, and along the way, at some point, I got introduced to something that was happening, happening in biblical scholarship. You know, not, a lot of things that happen in biblical scholarship are not helpful. Some things are actually helpful. And I got introduced to the way that scholars were examining the Psalter, the whole book of Psalms, as a book. And I found that they were naming what I was experiencing. In other words, they were talking about ways that the 150 Psalms seemed to have been intentionally arranged to create a broader kind of impressionistic story so that more is communicated by the whole than could be communicated by any one of the individual Psalms. And, and as I began to examine the evidence for this, uh, I, I immediately resonated with it because I had already experienced it in my own reading of the Psalter. So uh, I want to give you an analogy, uh, a couple of analogies. The first one has to do with authorship. And this is seeking to answer the question, who is responsible for this? And, and I'm going to propose to you that even though David is obviously not the author of every psalm in the Psalter, because there are psalms attributed to Solomon and the sons of Korah and Asaph and Moses even, still, I think this was David's idea. And, and as an analogy for what I think David did in the book of Psalms, there is a, a uh, basilica, a big Roman Catholic church, cathedral-type church, in Barcelona, Spain, uh, called the Sagra, Sa- Sagrada Familia Basil- Basilica in Barcelona. And it was begun uh, under the oversight of an architect named, named Anthony Gaudi. And I believe he died, if I, you can look this up and check my dates here, but I believe he died in like 1926... And construction continues. And even though other people have come in and taken over the project, it is still regarded as the work of Anthony Gaudi. Because he set out the, the agenda, he, he laid the plans, and then the others who have come in, they're just carrying forward his vision even as they apply their own genius to it. And I want to suggest to you that David started the project of the Psalter, and that David is ultimately responsible for most of what we're going to look at tonight. So what we're going to look at tonight is the evidence that the Psalter should be read as a book. And, and I want to point to things that I think support this conclusion. And then, and then I want to suggest that as you work through the Psalter, you think about it in terms of this other analogy that I'm now going to give you. Um, so I think that what David has done in the Psalter would be analogous to what one of us might do if we, if we worked through all the photos that we have of our own life experience. And, and we took each individual snapshot and we created like a collage of our life. And with this collage, it would be obvious to someone who knew us, someone who understood us, what they were seeing. We would probably start with maybe a photo of our parents and then maybe a photo of of us as a baby, and then maybe a photo of, you know, high school graduation, wedding day, uh, birth of your children, and so forth across your life. And then someone who knew you and understood what you were doing might come along and, and look at it, and if this were my life, they might supply a picture of me in my coffin, you know, after I'm dead and about to be buried. And they might supply, if I had left it out, a picture of, say, the two towers, and the smoke going up from them on 9-11, because, you know, maybe I wouldn't think to supply a photo that captured historical context. And they might supply some other things, but it would still be my project, and it would still be, in a way, my life that is told here, and each one of these individual photographs would still be communicating in themselves, even as they added to the broader story that is unfolded. So I want to propose to you that this is what's happening in the Psalter. That as we we read and understand the Psalms, each individual Psalm communicates to us in itself, but it also stands as a contribution to a broader storyline that that we can unfold. So I, I I want to run through some evidence for this idea that the Psalter has been intentionally shaped as a book, and really, again, I want to say 
this is most clearly discerned by those who, who, who know the Psalter best. This is most clearly discerned by those who know the Psalter best. So the proof of the pudding is in the eating, and the proof of what I'm saying is going to be in your experience of the Psalter. And I, I contend that the better you come to know the Psalms, the more you'll resonate with the things that I'm, I'm claiming here. So the first piece of evidence that I want to present to you are the doxologies that stand at the end of the, the books of the Psalter. So maybe you've noticed as you've worked through the Psalms that the Psalter is divided into five books. Um, people ask the question, why would this be? Why would uh, the Psalter be divided into five books? Well, if we have time, I'm going to point to indicators that, that, would, that would suggest that David is presenting himself along the lines of Moses. And, and I'm going to attribute a lot of theological understanding to David. I think that David was a careful student of the Torah and of all the scripture that was available to him. And, and I would suggest that in a way, in, in, at different points, David presents himself after the pattern of Moses. And so if Moses' great work is divided into five books, it would make sense that David might divide his great work, the Psalter, into five books. So let me draw your attention to the doxology at the end of Psalm 41. And each of these is going to consist of four parts. So Psalm 41, verse 13 reads, Blessed be the Lord, and the word Lord is, is uh, presented to us in small caps, where you have a capital R, but it's not as tall as the capital L, and you have a capital D, but it's not as tall as the capital L. These repre- this small caps, this represents the name Yahweh. So blessed be Yahweh, the God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting. That's a, one of the different ways the, the psalmists say forever. And then amen and amen. Those four elements, blessed be Yahweh, forever, amen, are going to mark every one of these doxologies. So the next one is at the end of Psalm 72. Psalm 72, verses 18 and 19, where we have, Blessed be Yahweh, the God of Israel, who alone does wondrous things. Blessed be his glorious name forever. May the whole earth be filled with his glory. And then after that, uh, the next one is at the end of Psalm 89. Psalm 89, verse 52, blessed be Yahweh forever, amen, and amen. And then at the end of Psalm 106, uh, verse, verse 48, blessed be Yahweh, the God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting, and let all the people say amen, praise Yahweh. Now, there isn't a statement like this at the end of the Psalter. But in some ways, Psalms 146 through 150 serve as the doxology. Because at the, end of, at the end of the Psalter, starting in Psalm 146, the thing just explodes into praise. So much so that I think you could, you could rightly ask the question, what would warrant this kind of celebration? And I want to suggest to you that what warrants the celebration in Psalms 146 through 150, what warrants that celebration is nothing less than the salvation of the whole world. Nothing less than the accomplishment of the purposes, or or we might say the anticipation of the accomplishment of the purposes that God set out to achieve when he created the world in the beginning. So I'm already kind of indicating that I think the Psalter is really about the story of the whole Bible. And in a way... Um, the, the, the last part of the Psalter, book five of the Psalter, is anticipating the fulfillment of everything the Bible uh, anticipates. Okay, so we see those doxologies at the ends of the books. The next thing I want to draw your attention to are um, some, some facts about the superscriptions. So um, some people raise questions about whether we should use the superscriptions of the Psalms to guide our interpretation... And my response to that is, we do not have a text of the Psalter that lacks the superscriptions. And and I think that we should regard the superscriptions of the Psalms as being just as biblical as we would regard the introduction to 1 Corinthians. So if you're going to regard Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, to the saints of God who are in Corinth or whatever else, if you're going to regard that as scripture, of course you're going to regard the, the superscriptions as scripture. 
uh, if, if somebody wants to talk about the superscriptions later, we can do that. But I'm just going to take it for granted that we should work with them. Um, with these superscriptions, it's very interesting to note how they are distributed and how, how they seem to have been strategically placed. So, so here's what I mean. In book one of the Psalter, Psalms 1 through 41, 37 of these carry the superscription of David. So 37 out of 41 of the first book, the first 41 Psalms, 37 of them are attributed to David. And just a, just a note on whether that indicates authorship. You know, some modern scholars, they, they raise questions about this. Um, within the Old Testament itself, these are regarded as attributing authorship. And the Lord Jesus regarded this as attributing authorship, and the authors of the New Testament regarded these as attributing authorship. So I know that some modern scholars will say, well, the Psalms are really anonymous. I want to say, Jesus didn't think they were anonymous. And the Old Testament authors that came after the Psalter, like the Altar of Chronicles, he didn't think they were anonymous. And Matthew and Mark and Luke and John didn't think they were anonymous. So again, I want to say, um, we should operate in accordance with what the superscriptions tell us. Okay, so 37 of the 41 have of David, and that makes it surprising when you get to Psalm 42, look at Psalm 42, to the choir master, a mosquito of the sons of Korah, and no mention of David. So along with the doxology at the end of Psalm 41, you have a change in authorship at the beginning of, at the beginning of Psalm 42. So at the, and this is going to mark every one of these seams between the books, and and it seems to me that this couldn't have been a, co- a coincidence. Somebody decided, we're going to put a doxology at the end of the group of Psalms, book one, and we're going to put, when we, when we start into the next collection of Psalms, we're going to start off with a new author. It happens again at Psalm 73. Psalm, um, l- before I read to you the superscription of Psalm 73, let me just note, of the 31 Psalms from Psalm 42 to 72... 18 of these are attributed to David. So heavily Davidic. A lot, of Div- a lot of David in books 1 and 2. And then you get to book 3, and, and again, we have a new authorship. Psalm 72 is uh, of Solomon, and then Psalm 73, a psalm of Asaph. So once again, doxology at the end of 72. New author starts book 3 at the beginning of Psalm 73. Now, here I want to pause here before we look at the... Well, just quickly, we, could, we can go ahead and look at the authorship thing. We'll come back to Psalm uh, 73. Uh, look at the end of book 3, at the end of Psalm 89. Uh, you have the doxology there in 89, uh, 52. And then Psalm 90 begins, a prayer of Moses, the man of God. So, uh, again, doxology, and then change in authorship. And then... Um, Book 5, Psalm 107, begins the same way that the Psalter itself begins with no superscription on Psalm 107. But again, we have a change in authorship. Now let me go back to um, say a little bit more about a curious feature of of, uh, the distribution of these superscriptions. So maybe you've noticed, as you've worked your way through the Psalter that you have some superscriptions that contain what we might call historical information. Uh, Superscriptions like the one we find on Psalm 3. A psalm of David, when he fled from Absalom, his son. So this is telling us exactly the circumstances in David's life where we can locate this psalm uh, in, in the narrative, let's say, of Samuel. So we know that this is 2 Samuel 15, when Absalom tried to steal the kingdom from his father and he drove David out of Jerusalem. That's, that's where that psalm is set. And, and you may think to yourself, well, those, those happen pretty regularly across the Psalter. But, you know, if you actually go and find where they are, he, here's something fascinating about their distribution. There are only 13 of these superscriptions that have historical information And 12 of the 13 are in books 1 and 2. You don't find any superscriptions with historical information in book 3. That's Psalms 73 through 89. 
or in book 4, that's Psalms 90 through 106, and there's only one in book 5, and it's pretty nondescript. Uh, It's over in Psalm 140, I think it's 144, no, it's 142, a mosquil of David, and all it says is, when he was in the cave. So, you know, there were a number... A number of times, actually, when he was in the cave, but this is one of them. And, and we don't get any more information than that. So, 12 of the 13 historical superscriptions are in books 1 and 2. And then we're going to combine that with this piece of information that's at the end of Psalm 72. Which is the last, these are the last words of book 2. Look at Psalm 72, verse 20. The prayers of David, the son of Jesse, are ended. Okay, now let's just bring together some pieces of information. Um, Heavily Davidic, books 1 and 2. 37 of 41 psalms psalms attributed to David in book 1. The only psalms not attributed to David in book 1 have no superscription at all. Psalms 1 and 2, no superscription. Psalm 10, no superscription. Psalm 33, no superscription. Every other psalm in book 1 is attributed to David. Uh, Book 2, 18 of 31 psalms attributed to David. Book 3... Psalms 73 through 89, you know how many Psalms of David there are there? One, Psalm 86. Book 4, 90 to 106, you know how many Psalms of David there are in that that collection? Two, 101 and 103, and that's it. And then we get to book 5, and there are, if I remember correctly, I think there are 15 in book 5. But we'll come back to book 5 in just a second. So, a whole lot of David in book 1, a whole lot of David in book 2... And then almost no David in book 3 and Psalm 72 verse 20, the prayers of David, the son of Jesse, are ended. And 12 historical superscriptions that deal with David's life in books 1 and 2 and only one in book 5, nothing in books 3 and 4. You see what I'm sort of trying to direct your mind toward? It looks like books 1 and 2 are dealing with David's own historical experience. And then I would suggest, with, with uh, Psalm 72, it, it's of Solomon. And, you know, you, you read Psalm 72, and I would love to take the time to go through this, but if I did that, it would derail us. It would take us off course, so I'm going to resist that temptation. If we were to read through Psalm 72, here's what I would suggest you would conclude. David is praying that what God promised him in 2 Samuel 7 would be fulfilled in accordance with what God promised to Abraham in Genesis 12, in accordance with the the words about the seed of the woman crushing the head of the serpent all the way back in Genesis 3.15. So it's like David in Psalm 72 is praying that the Lord would accomplish salvation through his son Solomon. So Psalm 72 of Solomon. And then in book 3, look at at Psalm 74, just briefly. We'll just... uh, I just want to draw your attention to verse 3, where the psalmist says, Direct your steps to the perpetual ruins. The enemy has destroyed everything in the sanctuary. There's been a threat on the temple. Uh, And then look at Psalm 79. You get the same thing. Psalm 79, um, verse 1. Oh God, the nations have come into your inheritance. They have defiled your holy temple. I don't think we're at the destruction of the temple yet there in Psalm 79. Uh, I think probably we should locate this with like 1 Kings 14 verse 25, which talks about how uh, Shishak, the king of Egypt, came up into the land and he, he subjected to Jerusalem, uh, subjected Jerusalem, he you know, basically defeated Jerusalem, and he plundered the temple, but he didn't destroy it. Um, I think that's what we've got there. But then over in Psalm 89... It looks like the temple has been destroyed and the king has been dethroned and the people have been carried off into exile. Look at Psalm 89, uh, verse 38. Uh, The psalmist says, But now you have cast off and rejected. You are full of wrath against your anointed. You have renounced the covenant with your servant. You have defiled his crown in the dust. You have breached all his walls. So it looks like in Psalm 89... Jerusalem has been destroyed. Uh, You know the story. Uh, The king flees the city. The Babylonians chase him down. They slaughter his seven sons. They gouge out his eyes. And then they shackle him and they carry him off into exile. It looks like that's what we're dealing with 
in Psalm 89. So I would suggest that in book one, books one and two, you're dealing with the life of the historical David. And then in book three, you're really dealing with the time from Solomon down to the destruction of Jerusalem. And at this point, the, the, the arrangement of the Psalter is brilliant because there, there are two occasions in the Pentateuch when the Lord said to Moses, I'm going to destroy them, Moses, and start over with you. The first one was in Exodus 32 when they made the golden calf. And the second one was in Numbers 14 when the spies brought back the bad report. And on both occasions, Moses says, don't do that, Lord. He says, if you do that, the the, the nations will get the wrong idea about who you are, what kind of God you are. So, you know, have regard for your reputation among the nations. And in in Exodus 32, uh, verses 12 through 14, Moses tells the Lord, turn... And relent from the disaster that you have spoken of doing to your people. Well, in Psalm 89, you know, it looks like in the same way that God was about to destroy the people and end the Mosaic Covenant. In Psalm 89, it almost looks like the Lord is done with the Davidic Covenant. And who should step forward to intercede but Moses in Psalm 90? And so here, Psalm 90 is Moses, a prayer of Moses, the man of God. And look at what he says in verse 12. He says, so teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. And then verse 13, when, when, he, when he prays, return, O Lord. This is the, the same Hebrew term that's rendered turn in Exodus thirty-two twelve. And then when the ESV renders this, have pity on your servants. Again, that's the same Hebrew term that's rendered relent. So essentially, in Psalm 90, verse 13, turn, relent, Moses prays the same terms, the same words that he had prayed in Exodus 32. And then look at the last psalm of uh, book 4, Psalm 106. Uh, And it says in verse 23, Therefore he said he would destroy them, had not Moses, his chosen one, stood in the breach before him. So you've got this intercession of Moses in Psalm 90 and then again in Psalm 106... And it's, it's almost like Mosaic intercession is bracketing the whole of book four. So just to summarize what I've suggested so far, you've got David in books one and two, David's sons from Solomon to the exile in book three, and then it's like you've got Mosaic intercession, which I, I would propose that what we're, what we're seeing is these people anticipating the exile from the land and suggesting that when that happens, they're going to need to return to Moses. When they get exiled from the land, what they need to do is go back to the Bible. They need to go back to Torah. They need to renew their commitment to the Lord and seek the Lord as uh, the law of Moses instructs them to do. Now look at the end of Psalm 106. And here's where, I mean, the Psalter is just absolutely fascinating. It's, It's got so many fascinating elements. Look at Psalm 106, um, verse 47. They pray, save us, O Lord our God, and gather us from among the nations. That is a prayer that's informed by the warnings of Moses. All the way back in Deuteronomy, Moses had threatened the people. If you go into that land and you break this covenant, the Lord is going to scatter you among the nations. But then in many of these instances, Moses will then say... But the Lord will remember the covenant that he made with your fathers, with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and he will gather you from all the places to which he has scattered you. And Psalm 106, 47 sounds like it's being prayed by people who have been scattered among the nations, and they're crying out now, gather us from all the places to which we have been scattered. So save us, O Lord our God, and gather us from among the nations that we may give thanks to your holy name and glory in your praise. Now drop your eyes down to Psalm 107. And uh, 107.1, O give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. Look back up at 106.45. For their sake he remembered his covenant and relented according to the abundance of his steadfast love. So steadfast love, almost almost at the end of 146, um, 106, right at the beginning of 107. This is 
Uh, I'm going to talk about link words in just a moment. These are some of the link words that bind particular psalms to one another. And then it continues in verse 2 of Psalm 107. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so. Now, redeemed, redemption, that's Exodus terminology. And all across the Old Testament, it's as though from Moses forward, people are saying the way that God saved us in the past at the Exodus is the way that God is going to save us in the future when he gathers us from all the places to which he has scattered us. So now it's as though Psalm 107 is speaking as though the prophesied and hoped for new Exodus has happened. And they're saying, let the redeemed, let those who have experienced the fulfillment of the Exodus say so. And then it continues, whom he has redeemed from trouble, verse 3, and gathered in from the lands. 106, 47, save us and gather us. 107, 2 and 3, let the redeemed say so, whom he has redeemed and gathered in, 107, 3, from the lands, from the east and from the west, from the north and from the south. So here's what I want to propose to you about Psalm 107. I think that what the psalmist is doing is projecting himself into the future and addressing the people who will experience the the promised redemption. And he's speaking as though the promised redemption has happened. And now what's going to happen is he's going to continue this, I think, throughout book 5, which leads me to the revival of David in book 5. So again, books 1 and 2, a whole lot of David. Book 3, only one psalm of David. Book 2, two psalms of David. Book 5, 15 psalms of David. And I would suggest to you that we're not, we're not looking back to the historical David in book 5. We're looking forward to the future king from David's line. In the way that in, in, the, in the prophecy of Ezekiel, when you get to Ezekiel 35, 34 and 37, Ezekiel will say, will say things like, You know, when the Lord redeems his people in the future, David will be king over them. He doesn't mean the historical David. He means the promised king from David's line is going to be king over them. And I think that's the king that, that's the David that we're dealing with in book five of the Psalter. Uh, I'm going to resist the temptation to talk about Psalm 108, other than to say this. Well, I've just, see, I've just given in to the temptation to talk about Psalm 108. Psalm 108 is one of those psalms that um, you might look at and think, oh, they got some good stuff there, but, you know, it's okay. Well, actually, it consists of the end of Psalm 57 and the end of Psalm 60. So, and, it, and it's attributed to David, a song, a psalm of David. I would propose to you that here's what David has done in Psalm 108. He has taken the end of Psalm 57, which is a psalm that has a historical superscription, And he's taken the end of Psalm 60, which also has a historical superscription, and he's projected this into the future. As if to say, what I experienced in Psalm 57 and what I experienced in Psalm 60 is actually typifying what the future king from my line will experience. And part of this, look at 108, um, 7 and 8. God has promised in his holiness, with exaltation I will divide up Shechem and portion out the valley of Sukkoth. Gilead is mine. Manasseh is mine. Ephraim is my helmet. Judah is my scepter. Moab is my washbasin. Upon Edom I cast my shoe. Now to set the context for this, let me just give give the wider picture. What's happened is the people have been exiled from the land and they're anticipating God saving them in the future, as he did in the past at the Exodus. And after he saved them at the Exodus, what did he do? He brought them to the land. They conquered the land, and they divided up the land. Well, if Psalm 108 is after the new Exodus salvation, what are they going to do? They're going to divide up the land. They're going to reconquer the land. And then Psalm 109... um, um, There's a lot of good things you can learn from C.S. Lewis... Uh, don't listen to him on Psalm 109. He, he, he says nasty things about Psalm 109, and I think he just fails, fails entirely to understand what's happening in Psalm 109. Psalm 109 is a blistering prayer of imprecation. And, and I want to suggest to you that we should pray the prayers of imprecation. 
We should pray that the unrepentant wicked would be met with God's justice. That God would do justice against them and that hopefully when they come face to face with God's justice and as in Psalm 3 where the psalmist prays, break the teeth of the wicked so God smashes their face. Hopefully they live through it and they realize I can't overcome him and then they repent and they turn and they believe and they get saved. We want that to happen and it will only happen if God's justice is applied to them. That. Now, if, if they don't repent, we don't want them to get away with it. So the prayers of imprecation, I would suggest, they, they all carry this caveat of, when you judge them, Lord, save them. But if you're not going to save them, don't let them get away with it. I think that's what's going on here. And in Psalm 109, this is very interesting because he starts with, with um, imprecations against a group of people. Verse 2, for wicked and deceitful mouths are opened against me. And then it narrows down to this one person in particular. Verse 6, appoint a wicked man against him. Let an accuser stand at his right hand. And then listen to verse 8. It says, may his days be few. May another take his office. Does that sound familiar? Does that ring any, any bells from where that passage might be quoted in the New Testament? That's quoted in Acts chapter 1 with reference to Judas. And I would suggest to you that the apostles have correctly interpreted what's going on in Psalm 109. Here's here's the way I would propose it's happened. They also quote Psalm 69, a prayer of imprecation from Psalm 69, right next to uh, this prayer of imprecation from Psalm 109 in Acts chapter 1. I would propose that David, in his own historical experience, as noted in Psalm 69, had people... Who betrayed him? People like Ahithophel. If I have time, we, we might run through the story of Ahithophel. He, he sided with Absalom. He was David's counselor. He sided with Absalom in Absalom's revolt. And, and in places like Psalm 69, I think that David is praying against people like Ahithophel who betrayed him. Now, I think David also sees parallels between Ahithophel betraying him and Joseph's brothers betraying him, and at one point, Aaron and Miriam betraying Moses, and now here's Ahithophel betraying David, and I think David thought, this has happened before, this is going to happen again. If somebody betrayed me, somebody's going to betray the future king that God promised to raise up from my line. And I would propose that David wrote Psalm 69 about his own experience expecting that, and he also wrote Psalm 109. For the future Messiah to apply against the one who would betray him. Which happens with Judas in Acts chapter 1. And that brings us to Psalm 110. Where David says, the Lord says to my Lord. And, and you know, Jesus, uh, I think, makes it clear in uh, the Gospels that David is talking about the king that God promised to raise up from his line. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. And then in verse 4, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And then he, he brings to fulfillment Genesis 3.15. Look at verse 6. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs. And if you're looking at an ESV like I am, there's a footnote on the word chiefs. And in the lower margin it says, or the head. The, the word head is behind the word rendered chiefs. So you could translate this, he will shatter head over the wide earth. And, and I think this is Psalm 110's way of saying the future king from David's line is going to be the seed of the woman who's going to crush the head of the serpent and all of his seed. And then uh, in response to that, in response to the triumph of Psalm 110, which by the way... Psalm 110 is the most quoted psalm in the New Testament. Uh, they, they everywhere refer to Psalm 110 as being fulfilled in the Lord Jesus. In response to that, Psalms 111 through 117 are the so-called Hallel Psalms. Uh, they eat, some of them begin, some of them begin and end with the words Hallelujah, which is rendered into English as praise the Lord. It's like... In Psalms 111 through 117, 
the hallelujahs are ringing out in response to the triumph of the future king from David's line in Psalm 110. And then Psalm 118. Um, look, at, look at verse 19, where the psalmist says, or the psalmist presents this person saying, Open to me the gates of righteousness, that I may enter through them and give thanks to the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord. The righteous shall enter through it. And maybe this calls to mind psalms like Psalm 15 and 24 that ask the question, who may ascend the hill of the Lord? And then they go through the characteristics of this guy, you know, the one who has clean hands and a pure heart, who doesn't lift up his soul to an idol. And, and in Psalm 24, it says, um, lift up your heads, you gates, and be lifted up, you ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. Who is this king of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty. He is the king of glory, the Lord mighty in battle. And it's like he's come in Psalm 118. And he's calling for the gates to be thrown wide. And then the people, it's as though, you know, in the city of Jerusalem, you had the temple which faced east. I don't know which direction is east in this room. But the temple faced east. Let's say that's east. The temple faced east, and the the gates of the temple were aligned with the gates of the city. So that if somebody came to the eastern gates of the city and approached the temple... The, the, the throngs, the hordes, could be gathered at the temple overlooking the city gates and they could be saying what they say here in, in 118, look at verse 22. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. That gets quoted all over the place in the New Testament. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. Uh, verse 25, save us, we pray, Hosanna. Um, and then verse 26, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. It is as though the king is coming to the city in triumph and the people are gathered at the temple and they're blessing him from the house of the Lord as he enters the city. And you remember what Jesus said at the triumphal entry. Uh, and and they're, you know, they're putting the, the palm branches down and the children are crying out, Hosanna. And the Pharisees and hypocrites, they say, make them stop. And he says, if they were to stop, the rocks would cry out. And he says, you won't see me again until you say, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. So at the triumphal entry, Jesus is quoting this passage saying, I'm going to come in fulfillment of Psalm 118. And then in 119, it's like the conquering king enters into the city and establishes the law of God as the way of life for the people of God in in the place that belongs to God. And it's this celebration of the goodness of God's word. And then in Psalms 120 through 134, you have these songs of ascent. Um, And and I think that, uh, well, the word that's rendered ascents in, in the phrase, the song of ascents, it's the same term that's used at the end of Chronicles, in 2 Chronicles 36, when the foreign king says, if anyone wants to return to Jerusalem, let him go up. That, that, that verb, Allah, let him go up, is the same verb that's, that's here. And, and um, you remember in Isaiah chapter 2, um, Isaiah prophesies that the mountain of the house of the Lord will be exalted as the highest of the mountains, and all the nations will say, come, let us go up to Zion, that he may teach us his law. I mean, and then the nations come streaming to Zion in in Isaiah chapter 2, and it's like the songs of ascent are about the nations streaming to Zion now that the king reigns there. And then you get to the end of the songs of ascent, and you come to Psalm 135. And as I walked through the Psalter, when I got to Psalm 135 and saw what I'm about to show you, I thought to myself... I'm not crazy. <laughs> Hallelujah, I am not crazy. Now, uh, here's, here's, here's why I, th- I thought that. Um, I don't have time to, to work through all of Deuteronomy chapter 32 with you. I would love to do that, but I just want to draw your attention to a few features of this text. In Deuteronomy 32, Moses is, is, is poetically retelling the history of Israel. So he talks about how the Lord, you know, 
uh, made Israel his people and he provided for them. And by the time you get to verse 15, he says, but Jeshurun grew fat and kicked. So the Lord was good to Israel and they spurned him. And then verse 19, the Lord saw it and spurned them because of the provocation of his sons and daughters. And he said, I will hide my face from them. I will see what their end will be. And you know, uh, prophets like Isaiah, uh, they say things like in Isaiah 8, Isaiah says, um, I will wait for the Lord who is hiding his face from Israel. So Isaiah is responding to the Lord hiding his face from the people because of their sin. And then uh, if you skip down to um, verse 26 in Deuteronomy 32, the Lord says, I would have said, I will cut them to pieces. I will wipe them from human memory. Had I not feared provocation by the enemy. So the Lord is saying, I would have utterly destroyed Israel if it wouldn't have given the nations the wrong idea. So he doesn't do that. And then when you get down to verse um, 36, Moses prophesies, for the Lord will vindicate his people and have compassion on his servants when he sees that their power is gone and there is none remaining bond or free. There are a bunch of places in the Pentateuch where Moses prophesies the future of the nation of Israel. And he basically says something like this. You're going to go into the land, break the covenant, be exiled, but God's going to save you in the future. And and that's essentially what he says here. The Lord will vindicate his people and have compassion on his servants when he sees that their power is gone and there is none remaining, bond or free. And then uh, in verse 39... He says, see now that I, even I am he, and there is no God beside me. I kill and I make alive. It's almost like the Lord is saying, when I exile you from the land, it's going to be like me killing you as a nation. But then when I I save you, when I bring you back, it's going to be like me resurrecting you from the dead. Now with all this from Deuteronomy 32, uh, look at Psalm 135. They start out saying, praise the Lord, praise the name of the Lord. And so forth. And then verse 4, they rehearse the way the Lord chose his people. And then uh, they they talk about the exodus in verses 8 and 9. It was he who struck down the firstborn of Egypt. Then they talk about the conquest in verses 10 and following. Struck down many nations, killed mighty kings. Verse 12, gave their land as a heritage. And then uh, look at verse 14. For the Lord will vindicate his people and have compassion on his servants. It's a quotation of Deuteronomy 32. Psalm 135, 14 quotes Deuteronomy 32, 36 exactly where you would expect to find it. It's like the psalmist is saying what Moses prophesied in Deuteronomy 32. That's what this book is about. It's about the future salvation of God's people. And this whole book five that's about the conquest of the future king from David's line starting from Psalm 110. That's what this psalm is about. So that when, when you follow this with Psalm 136, um, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. You know, this, this refrain that, that echoes through Psalm 136, for his steadfast love endures forever. It's, it's like the psalmists are saying, God is going to save the world because his steadfast love endures forever. God's going to save his people. God's going to fulfill his promises. God's going to bring the new king from David's line. God's going to resurrect the dead for his steadfast love endures forever. And then Psalm 137, it's almost like you snap back into reality because it's like you're in exile in Babylon. Psalm 137, verse 1, by the waters of Babylon, there we sat down and wept. And um, there, there, it's, it's, like, it's almost like the, uh, the future prophecy stops and you return to the reality of the present, anticipating the, what was prophesied. And um, I'm sure if you've read the Psalter, if you've read Psalm 137, you've probably wondered about verses 8 and 9. I'm going to read them to you. And again, these are some verses that people say nasty things about. You know, they'll, they'll act like these verses are sub-Christian or something. Psalm 137, 8 and 9. O daughter of Babylon, doomed to be destroyed. Blessed shall he be who repays you with what you have done to us. Blessed shall he be who takes your little ones and dashes them against the rock. I don't think this is sub-Christian. I think this is the outworking of Genesis 3.15. This is the crushing of the head of the seed of the serpent. And the word dashes there is the same term that was used in Psalm 2.9. 
Psalm 2, verse 9. Um, you will rule them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. So Psalm 137, 8 and 9 is really just a, a fulfillment of Psalm 2, verse 9. It's a fulfillment of Genesis 3, 15. It's saying, it's saying to all those who would continue in resistance against the Lord Jesus. Therefore, O kings, be wise, Psalm 2. Be warned, you rulers of the earth, for his wrath is quickly kindled, and you should kiss the sun, lest he be angry and you be destroyed in the way. You need to repent. You need to repent because if you don't repent, he will crush you. That's what Psalm 137 is doing. And then in 138 through 145, you have this last run of Psalms of David. And, um, and then, as I noted, in 146 through 150, you have this explosion of praise. So, I want to submit to you that the placement of the doxologies, the changes in authorship as you move from one book to another, the distribution of the superscriptions, the link words that bind the Psalms together, all of these things work together to create an impressionistic storyline that amounts to the David of history in books one and two. And, and, and what David typified in some ways is projected into book five, but before you get there, you've got uh, the, the, the descent of the sons of David down into exile in book three, and then reflection on the law of Moses and a return to the Lord in book four in anticipation of God's future salvation in book five. This story that I'm suggesting is told in the Psalter is the same story that's prophesied in the Pentateuch, that, that's, that's narrated in Joshua through Kings with the people entering the land and then being exiled from the land. And it's, it's what the prophets prophesy. The prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and the 12 minor prophets, they're all saying what the Psalter is saying. Moses made this covenant with us. We've broken the covenant. We're going to get exiled, or we have been exiled. But God's going to do this great work of salvation that, that, that's going to be accomplished by the future king from David's line. So I want to propose to you that the whole of the Old Testament tells a united, coherent, symphonic story. And the Psalter, the way the Psalms work, is they're, they're poetry, as you know. And poetry works on us at different levels than narrative works on us. So as we, I mean, I don't know if you guys are part of a tradition that sings the psalms. Uh, I think that my tradition is impoverished because we don't sing the psalms enough. When uh, we, more and more at Kenwood Baptist Church, um, we're, our, our worship pastor is finding um, settings of the psalms, you know, arrangements of the psalms and, and introducing them to the congregation. Um, I wish that we were a, a tradition that chanted the psalms, you know, from from antiquity the jews chanted the psalms and then the early church chanted the psalms and there are groups today that will chant the psalms lutherans will do this uh, some reformed churches and presbyterian churches um, in some cases they'll chant the psalms and and what this does as you as you recite the psalter from memory in order what it does is it builds these expectations into you it enculturates you it makes you part of the people for whom this is your song. This is your story. And it works on you at different levels. So, so worship, as we sing, uh, what happens is our theology is processed through a different kind of set of emotions and, and, and feelings. The, 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 the music and the worship that moves us, this is what it's doing for us. It's, it's rehearsing what God has done for us in the past in anticipation of what God is going to do for us, what he's promised to do for us in the future, so that we live in light of these things in the present. This is, this is what the Psalter is for. Gordon Winham, a, a really well-known Old Testament scholar, has said that the Psalter is an anthology to be memorized for the enculturation of the youth. Meaning, if, if you grew up with the, Sal, the Psalter, the Psalms as your songs you would be brought into a group of people, a culture where it's normal to expect what the Psalms prophesy. It's normal to respond to life the way the psalmists do. And, and that's really what we're trying to, 
to inculcate, isn't it? Um, there, there's a modern Old Testament scholar who, in her commentary on Psalms, you know, this is, she's not a believer. And she says something like, um, we actually don't want our children to embrace the perspective of the Psalter because it's imperialistic, it's violent, it, it's, so, it's so black and white. And, and I want to interrogate her, and I'm, I want to say to her, you don't want Jesus to reign? You don't want God's kingdom to come? You don't want God's name to be hallowed? You don't want God's will to... What is it that you want if you don't want these values impressed upon your children? All right, I think this is a good place for us to conclude. Let me pray for us. Actually, why don't I ask if... I mean, we've got like one minute. Any questions, anything you want to follow up on before I pray? Okay, well, maybe we can talk at dinner if you have things you want to pursue. Yes, I'll do that. I'll do that. Okay, let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the way that David and Asaph and the sons of Korah and Moses and Solomon and the others have served us by writing these psalms and by putting this book together. Lord, we praise you that you have been so good to us to give us not only truth that is good for us spiritually, but truth that is presented to us so artistically, so beautifully, so compellingly. And Lord, I pray that you would use our time to light a fire in us, to know the Psalter better than we do, to continue to make recourse to it as we seek to walk with you and live for you in this world. And Lord, I pray that you would encourage the weak and uh, nourish the downtrodden. And I pray that you would uh, strengthen your people through our time together uh, this weekend. I pray too, Lord, that you would bless everyone who makes it possible for us to be here. We thank you for those who have served us through the the preparation of this meal. We thank you for providing so abundantly for us. We thank you, Lord, for the opportunity to fellowship together and to eat together. And we pray that you would be honored in the way that we enjoy your goodness to us now. In Christ's name, amen.